Hi, this is Basti Latish and welcome to my podcast, Work Bitch. This is the podcast where I use my experience in over 20 years as a marketeer and customer experience leader and summarize it to make it usable for anyone who's an artist or a small business and wants to be more business minded. So today we're recording the sixth episode of this podcast. The previous episodes have covered career, advice, branding, target group, and last week, the sales funnel. And today we're going to talk about a big, important topic, pricing. So I'm a burlesque performer and... Um, we often have conversation backstage about, you know, pricing and what's the right price for, for an act, what's the right price for an experienced performer, for a beginner performer. And very often what I hear from the people around me is that they're going to point fingers at someone or maybe at new performers and they're saying, these people are killing the market or these people have you know, destroyed the prices and now nobody can make a living. And, uh, and everybody seems to believe that that's the reason why prices are low now, because somebody decided to ask for a lower price and then all the customers get used to that lower price and now nobody can ask for a high price. And the interesting thing is that people seem to not realize that this pattern is actually the basis of our whole entire capitalist system. And there's so much wrong with the way we live, and that's probably a whole nother different podcast. Um, but there's also a reason why, you know, we are all able to, you know, have a phone and be online and why those prices that used to be really expensive before are now lower. And that's also the same root cause, right? That's capitalism. And um, what I want to talk about is that phenomenon of price cutting and price setting and bring you a little bit of perspective on what I see from the business side in terms of price setting, price cutting, different scenarios and also what what we can do as artists what we can do also as companies when we are in a world where prices drop constantly so i've mentioned this example in my instagram live if you guys don't follow me on instagram already um, my instagram is at bustiletish and I go live on Instagram every other week um, to answer questions that you guys send me uh, based on this podcast and also any other thoughts or anything that I've seen that is relevant to the podcast. So I recommend you follow me on there, um, cover slightly different things from the podcast, but it all fits together. The example that I like to use to talk about the price war or pricing is the example of flat screen TVs. I've worked for different companies that used to produce TVs 
And when I started working there, flat screen TVs were brand new technology. They were extremely expensive, so only very affluent people who wanted to kind of show off and buy the latest thing had flat screen TVs. Um, I would say the mass, mass market or the mass of the people were thinking, well, what's special about flat screen TVs? It's just a TV. Um, and just the TVs were extremely expensive. And what happened over the next decade is that a lot of technology companies focused on creating cheaper and cheaper and cheaper flat screen TVs. But they were still pretty expensive. Not everybody could afford one. Um, and then Samsung and LG launched the cheapest flat screen TVs at the time. And they were so cheap that basically they were selling those TVs pretty much at loss, right? We couldn't understand how they could manufacture TVs and make a profit and sell them at that price. And they weren't. They weren't making a profit at that price. They were using TVs to grow their brands because LG and, and Samsung are now really household names. They make a lot of, you know, they make phones and they make um, white goods and a lot of different products. But TVs is such a nice product because everyone has it in their living room. You're looking at the brand every day when you turn your TV on. So it's a really good product to establish yourself as a household brand and they decided to sell TVs close to loss or at loss. So what happened accelerated the move from customers to exchange their old big TV to flat screen TVs to the point where TVs at that time were one of the fastest adopted technologies, right? There's this curve that somebody makes, I can't remember which technology company, where they look at how quickly new technology is adopted by people. And they're looking at, you know, how many decades did it take before every house had a fridge? How many decades did it take before every house had a color TV? And that curve of how long it takes for every household to have X item that curve is getting steeper and steeper and steeper because we are able to produce new technology cheaper within months nowadays. At the time of flat screen, flat screen TVs, it took a few years. But let me tell you, if you're a company who's built factories and a brand and has a heritage of making TVs, and within a decade, you see competitors cutting the prices so much that your TVs are no longer competitive, it really changes everything. What most companies ended up doing is moving their manufacturing away from Europe or away from where it was initially to Asia, particularly China, um, so that they could compete on the price, right? And then you would say, well, that's really wrong. We're losing so many jobs, and that's true. But the principle that um, the authorities that regulate free market are following is we do what's best for the customer. So they're not operating on we do what's best for the workers. They're operating on we do what's best for the customer. And cheaper products is what's best for the customer. 
And therefore, there's not really any regulation against that. In fact, it's seen as a good thing because, you know, purchasing power, etc., etc. Why am I giving you this example? I have heard so many artists sit in a room and blame each other, blame other artists for the fact that the prices in their industry have gone down. And I understand, right? Because it's easy to say, I used to be paid 200 euro for a gig and now I'm only paid 100 euro for a gig and that's not fair. Of course. But this is where you need to look at the products that you're buying every day and realize that this is happening in any, any, any industry, right? If I go back to my Coca-Cola example, you have the Coca-Cola, which is always the same price. It's a high brand, a high value brand. And then you have the cheap version of the Coca-Cola from the supermarket. Some people will buy the cheap one. Some people will buy the branded one, right? But the point is, do people understand what they're buying and do they understand the difference? One other example I can give you is makeup, right? So if I look at a mascara, I just bought a mascara. Today, I bought a Maybelline. That's not the cheapest mascara you can find. We can find even cheaper mascaras. It's definitely not the most expensive mascara, right? But if we imagine all the range of mascara that consumers or me have access to, I can choose the 50 euro Chanel mascara. I can choose the 3 euro Hema mascara. And each of these mascaras, I understand, is going to put mascara on my eyes. In principle, it's the same product. And yet somehow... I decide I'm not going to buy the cheapest one. I'm not going to buy the most expensive one. I'm going for a mid-range one. But I have friends who do buy the Chanel mascara. And I have friends who buy the cheapest mascara. Why? Because it depends on the value they put on it. Usually, my friends who buy the cheapest mascara are friends who put a lot of mascara every day. And they know that every mascara... Is pretty much the same. And my friends who buy the Chanel ones just like to feel spoiled and they have money to spend and they like spending it on beauty products. So what I'm trying to say is that there is a place for every price within a certain market as long as it's clear to the buyer what they are getting for that price and why the price is at the level that it is. There is no brand other than Chanel, Gucci, Lancôme that can ask for a 50 euro mascara unless they have a good reason to. And if Chanel would sell their mascara at three euros, their whole brand would suddenly make no sense. So pricing what you're selling for your customer and for the value that you deliver, that's what we're going to talk about. And what about the TV prices? Yes, most of the flat screen TVs are now much cheaper than they used to be. You can get a flat screen TV for 200, 300, 150. But you notice that there's also all new different kinds of flat screen TV and there's the OLED and there's the 
a curvy one, right? Those are more expensive. Also, some brands like Loewe, they manage to justify the fact that they're still expensive. They manage to position themselves as a luxury brand. Let's keep that in mind because we'll see some of these examples later in the podcast. The first point I want to address is the idea that it's possible to stop this price erosion. Very often when we're having this discussion with artist friends, they're saying, we should all agree on a rate. We should all talk to each other and agree on a rate and everyone should stick to that rate And then there would be no price erosion and we would be, you know, equal. That's kind of the same idea as having a union, right? And in some countries, there are unions that are defining the rates or the way of working also for artists, right? The thing with the union is that typically it's made to negotiate the conditions between one group of workers and one group of payers, let's say payers, because they could be uh, management in the case of unions in a factory. But in the case we're talking about, we're imagining that all clients would be together around the table to negotiate with us. Now, you can already see what is going to be difficult in our creative world, right? Because unions make sense when there is a clear dependence. So if there's a factory owner and the factory workers, and they need each other, right? The workers want, you know, their contract with the factory owner to clearly state what they're going to be paid and clearly codify who's going to be paid how much. Everyone in the factory knows that the person who works at night doesn't get the same rates as the person who works in the day. And the guy who's managing a team gets paid a different rate than the guy who's just working um, in, in, the, in the chain or in the uh, production line. Right? So you can easily codify Um, if you're working on the line and you're working during the day, that will be the price. If you're working at night, that will be the price. If you're leading a team, that will be the price. And then this codification is applied to everybody. It's agreed with the person who's paying. And there's this dependency because the person who's paying needs everyone to follow this codification. And the workers expect, of course, also the person who's paying to follow this codification. So it's basically two parties who need each other, who sit around a table and agree on some things. Now, you can see why it's so difficult to apply this in the creative world, because I believe every artist that I know has worked for completely different types of customers. We work with uh, cultural institutions. We work with private companies, we work with schools, we work with private persons, maybe who book us for a birthday. 
So how can we have a face-to-face or table around the table negotiation when we're talking about such different types of payers who each have a different background, a different kind of budget, and a different understanding of our codification? The other element on the artist side, on the creative side, is that it's not as simple as saying, well, some people work during the day, some people work during the night, some people manage a team. Because we have some artists who have studied at the conservatory and have 20 years of experience, but still have never booked a gig because they're just fresh out of school, right? And then we have some artists who maybe you know, learn how to play the accordion at home and didn't study at all, but somehow they are musicians and they have a lot of talent. So how do we decide the criteria that leads to the rates that the person should earn? It's really difficult, really difficult. Also, there's the notoriety, right? If somebody is maybe a brand new singer, but has been on TV already, of course their rates are going to be higher than somebody who is a brand new singer and is still singing, you know, busking on on the street. Of course, right? It makes sense because they're evolving in a different industry. So I think it's really difficult to codify. And here in the Netherlands, I've been reading about the CAO, which is kind of the union that represents artists. And they have rates and the rates are very variable and they've tried to kind of codify them for different arts and for different level of experience. But I think you cannot really take that table to a private company when you're trying to negotiate, you know, um, six artists for a company party that just... That's too far from their universe to be able to work. And by the way, the rates are also really too low. So if you're working with a private client, don't use the say, oh, would be my advice if you're in the Netherlands. So the fact that we don't have just one type of client and we don't have just one type of artist, that makes it really difficult to agree on rates. There are some countries that have tried. So my sister is an artist, a full-time artist in France. And in France, they've really codified the time of an artist in um, units of payment. And when you book a gig, you get a certain number of units. Now, first of all, the number of units is not that high. So, And even if you're booked by a private client, you still pretty much stick to your number of units. Um, So I'm not sure if it really gives freedom because it basically evens everything from the bottom, from the lowest rate. If you are listening from another country that has a codification or a union which works, please let me know because I can see every country is working in different ways and it's really interesting. So this was a section on price agreements. Now let's look at price fixing. I just want to add the reason why the union prices are so low is because those prices were negotiated within the cultural sector where the budgets are not that high. And because we want to go beyond the cultural sector and work with private companies and um, who have different budgets, 
that's why the unionized rates are too low for this and uh, not really suitable. Price fixing is a really important concept for me working in the corporate world. Every year, as someone working for a big multinational, I have to follow a training which reminds me of which business practices are illegal. So these are really business practices that have been legislated upon and have been found to be bad for the customer, bad for the market. We're thinking about monopoly. Obviously, if somebody has a monopoly, they are the only ones who win. Um, we're thinking about cartel, which is when a few companies own everything. Um, that's a little bit the situation in the social media world today, right? Facebook and um, yeah, Facebook owns Instagram and WhatsApp, and now they're pretty much in a monopoly and nobody knows what to do about it. Um, but one of the elements to that is price fixing. Because price fixing is when competitors agree on a certain price. And that means that they are not going to try to lower the prices. So the customer is kind of stuck, right? Maybe if these competitors were really competing with each other, the prices would go down, which is good for the customer. But because the competitors have agreed on a fixed price, the market is blocked. So that is seen as anti-competitive behavior. If I would do that, I could go to jail, my company could get fined. And so to avoid fines and jail, we all get trained every year and reminded we are not allowed to do this. It applies, by the way, not just to uh, discussing with competitors, but also forcing a price on the retailer, uh, the reseller, sorry, of our products. So when we launch a new product, we can say, this is the recommended retail price. But if the person who buys it wants to resell it cheaper, they can. They can set their own prices. And that's, again, the idea of free market. Yes, I know it's the capitalist world. It has all the uh, problems that we are all aware of. At the same time, if you look at the stuff you have in your house, most of what you have in your house is thanks to this, to this system, right? If you have a flat screen TV in your house, that's the reason. Anyway, price fixing is illegal. For me, it's been ingrained for the last 20 years that I am absolutely not allowed under any circumstance to talk about prices with my competitors. So when I'm in a changing room, with a bunch of performers who are talking about fixing the prices, my head explodes a little bit. Also because it's, it's kind of a, a hopeless um, discussion because even if you can get your 99 performers in your countries to agree on the price, if there is one new one who comes and they have not been in your agreement, well, again, the whole thing flips around, right? So the idea that we can all sit together and come up with a grid of prices, it's really nice, but it's not realistic. Because the moment somebody maybe has a bill to pay and really, really needs a gig, of course they will maybe, you know, play with the price. Or if somebody new comes on the market and they don't know, 
that there's an agreement, then they will also set their own price. So it's, it's a nice idea, but it's, it's not enforceable. Um, plus, it might even be illegal, depending how we present it. Um, and of course, it's not it ultimately good for the customer. Um, which, okay, in this case, we're thinking about what is good for the performer and for the artist. But ultimately, it's also about the people who book us, right? They also have to be able to book us. So that's all I want to say about price fixing. I have yet to see that succeed. I think the moments where it can succeed is, again, when you are in a state of dependence. So let's say you have a club that hires a lot of performers, that's a situation where all the performers working at that club could agree that they all get paid the same rates, right? Because there you have that clear dependency. Again, you're sitting around the same table. It's a clear buyer and a clear group of seller. And you can absolutely have that conversation. From now on at that club, we all get paid the same rate and this is the rate, right? So there are some situations where you can agree with each other but if you're talking about a small group of buyers or one buyer in particular, I hope that's clear. Price fixing, maybe not legal, difficult to enforce. Unionizing, quite difficult as well to enforce in the uh, arts world. So what can we do to make sure that we preserve our rates, right? That we get paid our worth. There's basically two strategies there. One is innovation. The other one is branding. You can combine both. What do I mean with innovation? Let's go back to our mascara example. If there is a mascara that comes up with 3D technology, usually it comes up in the high-end uh, mascara like Lancôme. And then within a year or two, it trickles down to the L'Oréal. And then a year later, it's in the low-range uh, supermarket brand uh, mascara. But is Lancôme still selling that 3D technology by then? No, they already launched new technology. And yes, it's bad for the environment. It's bad for the world. Absolutely. Although I think they're all kind of worth each other, the mascaras. I'm not sure some of them are that much worse. The point is, as soon as someone is copying at a lower price, they have something else that they're launching. Because that's a competitive advantage. That's something that is not there in the cheaper range. So they are constantly looking for new things to sell. Again, very capitalistic to be always looking for the latest thing. But I think as artists, we also do that, right? We're always looking for a new act or learning some new skills, building something new, having a new show. We have inspiration. We have creative flow, right? So this is something we naturally do. We're creating new stuff all the time. 
And that new stuff should be valued as really special because it's brand new and it's the cool thing. So innovation. And if I look specifically, for instance, on the burlesque um, scene, um, this is where you will typically see, um, you know, the first performer who was working with the big, big BOA fans and how special it was when there was only them. And then little by little, everybody has the same fans. And now, you know, you can book somebody locally who has those fans. And they will be then working on the next thing. If you go to, I don't know, Cirque du Soleil, for instance, right? Or they always want to have the coolest stunts and the most new and different uh, acts. So when you have something new and differentiating, you can ask any price you want because no one is doing what you're doing. And I'm not saying, okay, uh, everybody should learn to walk on stilts while juggling because not everybody can do that. But your creativity and something that is new and unseen, that is worth something. Something that hasn't been copied and, and, and watched and seen again and again, that is also worth something, right? So innovation is something we use. In fact, if you're working in a, a company that manufactures products, I would say a third of the time, money and uh, people is spent on what we call research and development, which is creating new things. Constantly creating new things, constantly launching new things. Because the new things have no copy, so the new things we can sell for whatever price we want, kind of. So how can you innovate in your field? If you're a singer or you're a painter, I can imagine that innovation maybe is harder to, to realize, right? Because you, you're singing and, and what's, what would be the new thing you can do? Well, you can maybe be the first person to cover the coolest song and put that on your website and therefore the weddings will book you because you cover Billie Eilish or whatever, right? That could be your innovation as a singer. But the other lever you can play with is branding. Because again, what's the difference between your Lancôme mascara and your Hema mascara? That's the brand. And Lancôme has managed to convince people that their products are better, that 50 euros for a Lancôme mascara is fair, um, that what they launch is always the best. Um, and there are some people who will tell you that they cannot use anything else than a Lancôme mascara because it just is the best, right? So that's how, how much Lancôme has worked on their branding to convince people that, yes, they are worth that price difference. What can you do to convince your customers and your potential customers that you are worth the price difference? There's a branding episode. If you can go back in my podcast, I do talk about branding there. But this for me is the reason why we brand. The reason why we brand and the reason why we are in the press. The reason why we, you know, maybe do um, the voice or whatever you want to do is so that people realize, oh, I'm, I'm not like all the other cheap singers. I am on another level. 
I've been on TV or I've performed at the Paradiso, you know, which is a big stage here in Amsterdam because not everybody needs to be on TV or wants to be on TV. What is the value in your field? Is it about that you sang with this really cool band or that you sang at this festival or that you sang on that stage or that you recorded an album or that you had a song in the chart? What proves to your customer that no, they should not pay the low price for you because you are worth more, right? That's for you to find. And that is the key in your branding. What makes you special and justifies the price that you're asking for? And conversely, if that's the right word, if you are someone who knows the rates of your competitors and you are going to their customers and you are saying, you know that, I don't know, that walking on stilts and uh, um, in this beautiful bird costume that this person is doing at your event, I can do the exact same thing for cheaper. You are branding yourself as the cheap copy. That's what you're doing. You're telling everyone, your customers, your competitors, everyone that you are a cheap copy. You didn't invent something new and original. You're doing the same for cheaper. It's a choice, right? You're, you're, allowed, you're allowed to make that choice. Where does it take you, though? Where does it take you from now on? Do you want to have the cheaper price forever? Is this where you see your career? Like, if you would have a plan for your career, are you really going to put, I will be the cheaper option? This is who I want to be. You could, huh? again, it's completely legitimate ch choice. It will piss off some people. But if that's who you want to be, you know, that's who you want to be. It's hard to imagine that it's a fulfilling position, though. I think people do that when they start. And then two years later, they realize, mm, I'm not making enough money. Now I want to increase my rates and now I'm stuck. So <laughs> think about the long term a little bit. Um, and I do believe that someone with less experience should not ask the same rate as someone with more experience. Because then how do we know what value is, right? Um, but still... It should be really clear if I'm paying more, what I'm getting more. And I think that's a reason why when we have low prices, the low prices stick often in the arts world because it's sometimes really difficult to see the difference between that newcomer who does the show for 50 euros and that person who's done the show for five years and does it for 100 euros. And honestly, the newcomer has better costume and a better voice. Right. So if you're if you're wondering, why is my customer be booking the newcomer instead of me? Take also a good critical look at yourself. Do you really can, can uh, believe? Can you really justify being more expensive than the newcomer? Right. I see that in, the, in drag. Right. There's there's some drag queens who are doing drag for for years and years and years. And they're so surprised that younger people 
uh, or younger artists, let's say, get booked, but then you think, well, look at the work the newcomers have put in your costume and you're just still walking around with, you know, those costumes, like, well, actually, that doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, if you find yourself in an industry where the prices are cut, take a good look at the product you're delivering and at how you've branded yourself. Because if you're telling your customer, I have 20 years of experience, but they go on Google and they put your name and nothing comes up or some really cheap looking pictures, you're not really justifying your price premium, right? So branding and innovation, um, that's how you differentiate yourself. One important distinction to make is that I'm referring to starters or beginner performers um, and the concept of experience. And again, you can listen to my branding episode for more information on that. But I really want to point out that the creative world or the arts world or the entertainment world is one of very few, I think maybe together with sports, where sometimes the newcomers are more valuable than the people with more experience because they have more flexible bodies or a brand new style or a fresh new voice. Um, so yes, I'm comparing people with experience with newcomers, but sometimes that relationship is, is the opposite, where the buyers will prefer the newcomers to the person with a lot of experience. That's one important element to keep in mind. The other element to keep in mind, which is really specific to the creative world, is that There are a lot of newcomers that are coming into this field from um, the perspective of a hobby. So maybe I always played the piano at home uh, and then one day somebody offers me to play in a bar and I don't feel like I can ask professional rates because I'm not a professional, I don't have the um, experience, I don't have the studies, I don't have the credentials, so I don't dare to put myself in the same box as a professional piano player because I don't have the same background. And ironically, these are the people who often then the professionals will see as, well, you're cutting our prices, when in fact they themselves feel, well, I couldn't possibly ask for a professional price because I'm not a professional. So that tension between the, the hobbyist amateur And the professional, that I think is really unique to the creative uh, world. I cannot think of any other field where that happens. And I think that creates a lot of the tension we see around pricing. We're coming to the end of this podcast episode on pricing. What can you do? What can you do about pricing? So if you feel like cutting prices, think about what it says about your brand and your act and your art and how it's going to work for you in the long run. And if you feel like quoting premium prices, take a look at what you're offering at where your brand is, so Google yourself and see how high-end the results are that are coming up. 
look at your products and compare them with those of the people who are, you think, cutting the prices. So really look at your brand and your product in a critical way. If you're a newcomer and you have absolutely amazing and an amazing act, don't offer the cheapest price. Price it for the value that it is. Um, so be really critical. And again, if you need help with that, I offer coaching. During COVID times, I have a limited amount of free coaching sessions. You can look on my website if you want some help. But you can also ask your friends. You don't necessarily need me. Just be really critical to yourself and do some research. Innovate, because when you have new stuff, it's easier to um, set your own prices. Build your brand, because when your brand is supported by evidence, like newspaper articles or YouTube videos with a lot of views, etc., it's also easier to justify high prices. And the other thing that I want to flag is flexible pricing. Because we are making, I think, a mistake when we think that there is one price for one act. Because it's, the truth is we have different types of customers and they work with different budgets. So, you know, the, the lady who's turning 50 and wants uh, uh, a stripper at her birthday clearly has a different budget than the corporate company that's making a party for their, all their employees clearly has a different budget from the local roller derby association, right? That's working on volunteer phase. So in the business world, we have different prices for different customers. There's even some companies I work with who give their products for free to NGOs, to non um to companies that don't make profit or to associations, right? If you want to buy their product and you're a non-profit, they give it for free or for almost nothing. But the bigger the company, the bigger the price. Why don't we do that, right? So there's a price range. And what I really encourage that I see happening more and more is flex flexible pricing, just even visible, right? For workshops or for classes, to really say, listen, these are the different price levels. If you're really strapped for cash, this is the lowest price. If you can afford the regular price, this is the price. And if you really want to support me and you have cash to spare, that's the highest price. And I've seen if you follow Ruby Jones, you will notice that they uh, use this kind of pricing for a lot of um, what they do. And my friend Vivienne Delamour, who gives amazing, uh, amazing workshops, also adopted this flexible pricing. And you'd be surprised. I've talked to a few people who say, yeah, but if I offer flexible prices, everybody will pick the, pick the cheapest. Okay, maybe in your target group. But personally, as somebody who, you know, has a day job, when there is a flexible price and I can afford the higher price, I do pay for the higher price because it's a great way to, to sponsor also the artist or the people that I want to sponsor. And I am sure it's not just me. So flexible pricing, change the way you think about pricing because um, higher prices make sense if you are talking to people who can pay for them, right? And lower prices make, make sense if for accessibility. 
And you don't have to choose one or the other. You can combine them. That's really what I believe. And uh, as soon as I'm able to implement that, uh, I will. <laughs> mm. And if you are implementing that, I'd love to hear how it's going for you and what you've learned. Thanks for listening to this episode on pricing. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as always, please feel free to contact me. Um, give me your feedback. Did you like it? Did you hate it? Will you do anything different based on the information I gave you? You can message me on Instagram at Bustilatish. That's B-U-S-T-I-E-L-A-T-I-S-H. Or you can email me bustilatish at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word. Help me, help me reach more people. You can do that by tagging me in your stories on Instagram. You can do that by sharing the podcasts from Spotify into your stories. Again, tag me and I will retag you. Post on Facebook, um, tag people who could listen to this podcast. The more I think about it, the more I think that some of these episodes could be beneficial to people in a lot of different industries. Um, and I'm not sure I'm reaching all of them now. So if you think what I'm doing is valuable, um, thank you for spreading the word. And uh, talk to you next time. Bye.